The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. You can join us live Saturday nights at 6 p.m., Sunday mornings at 9, 10.30, or 12, or you can join us online at cityrev.org. Well, as we begin our uh, Bible study time together, I was reflecting on one part of history, of ancient history, that I've always been intrigued by. It's uh, concerning the legendary Trojan War. So imagine the, the works of Homer, the uh, Iliad, the Odyssey, or the Aeneid by Virgil. And um, just thoughtful about that, the, the, that battle and the besieging of, of Troy and all of those, those components. But there's one particular part, and um, it's for good reason. I mean, it's the most famous part of the story, but it's that Trojan horse that the Greeks, uh, they, they have been sieging um, Troy, and then they, they, they retreat, and the Trojans come out and they see that they have left behind this wooden horse. Now, maybe it's just because I know what's going to happen, but, and I know that it's almost certainly not historical, it's more legend, but um, I, I just don't understand what possessed them to bring that horse into the gates. I mean, why would they do that? I mean, they've got to see like, oh, I mean, you know, our, our, our enemies just happened to leave this year. Yeah, why not? Let's just bring that inside the gates. And um, uh, maybe that's because I know what's going to happen. But um, I, I w- went back recently and I was looking at how that story plays out. And specifically in the poem, uh, the Aeneid by the Roman um, poet Virgil. He writes about what they're thinking and why they bring that in to their, into their gates. And in fact, it wasn't a unanimous decision. Um, there were actually, when they go out to see this Trojan horse out there, they um, actually, there were some that were debating that they should bring it in. There was one of their leaders, he was a priest, and um, Laocanon, and he was telling them, like, no, please don't bring this in. Like, why would we think that this is not treachery? But then he talks about why it was that they thought, yes, this is a good idea. Let's bring this wooden horse into uh, our city. And what they thought is that that horse was left as a sacrifice to a god. And so the first thing was they felt like if they, if they destroyed it or they left it outside of their city, they were afraid to do that. They thought that they would like profane the sacrifice and make the god or goddess mad that this was being uh, offered to. And so first thing they were afraid. So they started to bring it in. And then once they were bringing it in, they, now they were celebrating that they were doing the right thing. And they're actually rejoicing and dancing as they were bringing this, uh, this Trojan horse and of course night fell and uh, they didn't suspect anything and the Greeks creep out of this, uh, this wooden horse and um, they go to the, the gates, open the gates and the army uh, rushes into the city and takes the city and Troy, the city falls. And so such an interesting story and I bring up this story because a lot of times um, if you're someone who's got you know spiritual interest or you're interested in the Bible or you listen to to preaching or sermons, or maybe you're a follower of Christ. A lot of times what we talk about in the Bible are the things in the Bible that were like, look, I know I probably shouldn't have this in my life, but I I need a reminder every now and then why, that's right, that's right, I don't want this as a bad thing in my life. Or there's sometimes that I come across something like, oh, I didn't know that that was an unhealthy thing in my life. Yeah, that's a good idea. That's a good practice. Let me remove that out of my life. But there are a few things 
that we actually look at in our lives and we say, well, that's a good thing, right? Yeah, yeah, I'd actually be afraid to take it out of my life. But no, I I think it's a good thing. It's actually sometimes we we maybe subconsciously celebrate it. We subconsciously are afraid to remove it. And there's one particular thing that the Bible just so clearly talks about. It says, if we don't remove this, it's like a sneak attack on our lives from the enemy. Specifically, the Bible says that about bitterness. I want you to see what it says in the book of Ephesians. We're going to look at chapter 4. And if you have a Bible or Bible app, I want you to go ahead and open to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to look at, start in verse 24. And here's what I want to do. We're going to look at this section between Ephesians 4, 24 through uh, 5 verse 1. But what I want to do first, we're going to do this a little different. I want to read you the first verse and the last verse because they are kind of like bookends. And I want you to see what the first and the last verse say. Then I'm going to read through what's in the middle, like the rest of it, and I want to pull out a couple things. But I want you just to see the bookends. Look at chapter 4, verse 24. Here's what it says. This is the book of Ephesians in the New Testament. It says this, And to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So put on a new self in the likeness of God. And then at the other end of this passage, chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. I want you just to see the bookends. I just want to pause for a second. It starts by saying, okay, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're saying, yes, I believe that I believe in Jesus, I've put my faith in Jesus, He's, he is uh, my Lord, I, I worship Jesus, I follow Jesus. If that's where you're coming from, then, he, then this is what the, the Bible says. It says, then put on, there's a new self, like the old self you put away, you put on a new self, and that new self is in the likeness of God. It's, you are becoming coming more and more like God. And then at the other end, it kind of comes back around to that concept and says, so be imitators of God. And this theme of God making us more and more like him, we see cover to cover in the Bible. In the very beginning, when he makes humans before sin enters into the world and we fall into sin with Adam and Eve and eating the forbidden fruit, before that, it says that God made humans in his image. And then he tells in the law, he says, be holy like I am holy. The the goal is that we are becoming more and more like our creator. And so in this section, he's saying, look, there are some ways that we're to put on, get, get rid of our old self But put on the new self. We're we're becoming something completely different. We're becoming new. We're becoming like God. And then he gives this list. I want to read through this. This is um, Ephesians 4. We're going to read straight from 25 through 32. And in this section, there's so many really good nuggets in this section. There are, if you counted them up, there are 12 different commands right here in this section. So let me just read through it, just hear this, so much good stuff. In fact, maybe um, later this week, you just go back through this passage and, and just reflect on it, but so much good stuff in here. Here's what it says, let's pick it up in verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. 
Let no corrupt, corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. I mean, so much stuff in there. I mean, we could spend probably months just going through all of that stuff. It talks about speaking the truth. It talks about how we should speak in a way that we're not corrupting each other. We're not destroying and breaking each other down. We're building each other up. It talks about um, working hard, not stealing. I mean, there's so many things in there that it's saying this is the old self. This is the new self. But there's two sections in there that speak about the issue of anger and bitterness and forgiveness. And I want to really draw your attention to these because I believe this is going to unpack something that slips into our life. And if we're not careful, is going to sneak in and wreak havoc on us. And it's some, one of those things that every single human being at one point or another has to deal with. I want to draw your attention back to verse 26 and 27. Look at these again. Be angry... And do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Now there's a, a number of commands. The first one is interesting. The first command is, be angry. Now that's very instructive because it's not saying, don't hear that this passage is saying, all anger is wrong. Because there's a lot of anger that is righteous. There is a good type of anger. If someone hurts my family or one of my friends or hurts my church, if someone hurts those that I love or someone hurts someone who is helpless, if, if there's injustice, that makes me angry. In fact, it makes God angry. There are times that Jesus is angry with how people are treated. There is a righteous type of anger that's understandable. It says, be angry, but then it says, do not sin. And so here's what it's saying. There are times that you're going to be angry. There's times that you're naturally going to be angry, but you can be angry and then fall into sin. And so it says, okay, it's one thing to be angry. It's another thing to let that anger cause sin in your life, to draw you into something that's going to destroy your life. And so we have these two commands. And then we hear this other command, do not let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, it's one thing to be angry. There's times it's natural to be angry. And there's probably times it's good to be angry. But one of the ways that can lead us into sin is if we let the sun go down on the anger. In other words, if we don't deal with that anger right away and we linger in our anger. Man, anger is one of those things that we can linger in. We can just kind of stew in it. We can just kind of like take that anger and kind of rehearse it and nurse it and fuel it and empower it. We can just replay it over and over and over. And what this is saying is saying, 
When it says, do not let the sun go down on our anger, that's not like literally like, you know, find out when the sunset is and take care of it. Before. It's saying it's a metaphor for deal with it quickly. Because if we don't and we just kind of stew in it, we just kind of let it marinate our lives in this anger, here's what it says next. And if you take the Bible seriously at all, this next phrase that it said should terrify you. It should be not like incapacitate you, kind of terrify you, but it should get your attention and it should be something that we, that we stop in our tracks and take very seriously. It says, do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not let give an opportunity to the devil. Do not give the devil. Another translation says, do not give the devil a foothold, saying, is that a metaphor for something? No, that's literally saying the devil, Satan, the evil one, demons, the enemy in general, the spiritual enemy wants to get a foothold in our lives. And if we stew in our anger and bitterness, we're giving the enemy an opportunity. The actual word there is uh, topon, as in like topographical map. Like it's saying, don't give the enemy space. Don't give him territory to work with in your life. Think about what happens when we stew and just kind of fuel and linger in our anger. So let me give you an example. You're at work. You and one of your coworkers are assigned a project. You work together on it. It goes well. And let's say a couple months later, um, that is acknowledged at a meeting. And let's say the higher ups are talking about that and they give credit to your coworker and your coworker doesn't exactly share that you were part of it as well and just absorbs all the glory um, on their own. Is that gonna make you angry? Well, yeah, they're doing something unjust. It's actually kind of deceptive. They're taking as if they did the whole thing. No one else did anything about it. They're taking all the glory and the credit for, for it themselves and not acknowledging you at all. Of course, that would make someone angry. That is unjust. What this is saying is deal with that anger. Don't let that anger turn into sin. Now, I, I want to, before we go any further... This passage is specifically talking about the internal battle with anger. There's the external battle with anger and there's the internal. So there's the, the stuff, the places in the Bible that talks about how to go talk to that coworker and speak the truth in love and go sit down with them and try and have a reasonable, respectful conversation. The Bible talks about that, but this passage is more about the internal issues with anger. So whether or not, because here's what can happen. We can go talk to the coworker and they say, we're sorry. And we forgive them. And we can do the external part of dealing with anger and not address the internal part. And still, I don't trust that person. I don't like that person. I'm mad at that person. I want that person to fail. 
Then there's the internal part where we say, well, maybe, you know, maybe, the, maybe I, I deal with it um, internally, but I've never dealt with it externally. Those are two separate things. They're both important. They both need to be handled in, in the right way, and the Bible speaks to both of those. This part of the Bible is speaking about the internal battle with anger. So whether or not you ever confront or talk lovingly and respectfully to that coworker about it, let's say you move forward and you linger in that anger. And every time you see them, you're just, your stomach kind of turns. And every time you hear someone reference their name, your, your heart kind of tightens as you're thinking about this person. And you're thinking, man, I don't trust them. And then all of a sudden you see them talking to some of your friends. And you're like, man, I wonder what they're saying to some of my friends in the break room. I wonder if they're probably talking about me. And you know what? I, I wonder if, well, that, now my friend acted a little weird to me. I wonder if it was because of what that person said. And so now you're suspicious of them and now you don't trust them. And now they're over there, they're talking to the boss. And now you're like, oh, I know what they're doing. They're probably just taking credit for something else. And now you're filling in the, the blanks for that. And now you're like, well, I need to make, make sure these other people don't happen. So now you're talking to your friends. You know what this person, they're just going around making their whole career, stepping on top of everyone. And now now not, now not only have I responded, let's say if that's me, not only have I responded judgmentally, not only have I filled in the blanks with things I don't know as I'm nursing this anger in my heart, now I've slandered against the person. And then let's say this person now gets a credit for, for something again. Now I'm mad at this person and now I'm hoping they somehow get found out and they get fired and now I'm wishing harm on this person, wishing this person would go away. You see, what happens when we nurse our anger and we don't deal with it, we're giving space for the enemy to have a field day with us. He makes us feel envious. He makes us feel competitive. He makes us, he, he makes us even maybe gossip and slander. He makes us maybe even attack someone. Maybe we blow up at them and we get all mean at them. Or maybe we, 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 we do some kind of mean post on social media. Like now all of a sudden he's drawn all this out of me. I've just given space to the enemy. I've given him material to work with in my life. Not the least of which, man, all that bitterness and anger has pretty much robbed me of my joy, my happiness. Maybe even uh, I, I lay awake at night. Maybe even um, you know uh, my, my stomach churns so much it makes me sick. Man, he loves when we sit in anger that's not addressed. He just pulls us in. It's one thing to be angry, but anger can lead to sin. We've got to deal with it quickly so we don't give space for the enemy to work. But that's not all this says about anger. Maybe you say, okay, well, what am I supposed to do? Because I've got things like we all do that... I'm justifiably angry about. Well, here's what it says. I want you to jump down to verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with malice, with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. There are three commands in here. The first one um, is to put some things away. Put them away. Get them out of your life. And here are the things he references. 
Bitterness, get bitterness out of your life. Get wrath and anger out of your life. Get clamor, slander, malice. Get all of that stuff out of your life. Let's talk through these various things. Interestingly, in the ancient Greek, they use their word bitter almost identically to how we use our word for bitter as well. So we use the word bitter. Bitter can mean like, you know, something sour. And it can mean something literally sour like a lemon. Or it can be an attitude that we have. And the ancient Greek uses the words in the same exact way. So bitter is exactly what the ancient writer is talking about here. He says, man, get bitterness out of your life. Whatever that sourness is towards someone, that's what bitterness is. My attitude is soured towards someone. When I hear their name, I'm like, ugh. When I hear that person, I'm just like, man, I don't like that person. I don't want to think about that person. I don't, I'm unfriending that person. I'm getting that person. I don't want to be around that person. That sour perspective in my life, just get rid of that. Get rid of the sourness. Then he talks about anger and wrath. And these are two interesting words because these are often paired together and they're often used to talk about God's justice, his anger and wrath. It's when God sees injustice and it boils over into the righteous punishment for anger and wrath. And um, we feel that sometimes. We feel when we see, when someone does something to us, we have the impulse to make it just through our retaliation and our revenge. What does the Bible say? The Bible says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. He, he, in other words, he says, yeah, revenge and retaliation, that's not up to you. That's up to me. And there's two reasons why that's the way it should be and why we want it to be like that. The first is we're not really, can't really be trusted with justice, especially when it's our wounds. Okay, I want to take you all the way back when you were a kid on the playground. If one kid punches another kid, the other kid is not going to say, okay, how hard did he punch me? Let me punch him back with the exact same force. If, if one kid punches the other kid, the other's punching him back harder, or maybe with two punches, or maybe he's going to throw him on the ground and kick him. There's not the exact same force that's delivered back. No, we, we can't be trusted with justice, especially when we're the wounded party. Only God can be trusted with justice. That's the one thing. The second thing, only God can fully and perfectly deliver justice. You actually would rather have God be the one bringing justice. But what do we do? We vent our anger and wrath at people. You say, well, I don't know. It's not like I'm exacting revenge. I don't have like a plot like in a basement somewhere to like off someone. You know, I don't, it's not like that. But, you know, we retaliate usually in other ways. Like some of the things we're talking about. We, man, we, we vent anger. We gossip. In fact, those are the next things it talks about. It says, put away all bitterness put away all anger and wrath. And then it says, put away all clamor. What's clamor? That's when things get loud. It's noise. That's when I'm so angry. I make a scene. You know, things get knocked off a table. Walls get punched. I get in someone's face. Fingers are pointed. Things are said. Curse words are flying. It's when things get heated and boil over. 
But see, in our day and age, we don't just do that physically. In fact, we do that less physically. We do that now more digitally. So where does that kind of boil over, that kind of clamor? It's in angry posts that get packed out and then comments that get really mean-spirited and then another mean-spirited and then these sweeping statements and curse words and hateful words that we pass back and forth. That's what clamor is. It's when things get loud and noisy. He says, put all that away. He says, uh, bitterness, anger, and wrath, clamor, and then he says, slander. Slander is maybe even more damaging than clamor, but it's, it's the exact opposite. It's not loud. Slander is secretive. Instead of getting loud and yelling at that family member, that coworker, that neighbor, I just quietly talk behind their back. Instead of just tear, looking them in the eye and tearing them down, I do all the work all around them and talk to everyone around them and just tear their relationships to shreds. Slander is, uh, man, so easily hidden. Slander is, hey, I don't mean to talk bad about anyone, but, hey, I just want to make sure you're aware of what's happening. I, I just need to, or I just need to get this off my chest and need someone that I can trust. You know our mutual friend that we both know, right? See, slander is that anger pouring out that we're trying to pour out our wrath, make things right, make things just, and tearing someone down. But then he saves this last one, malice, and he separates that off by itself. And he says, man, and, and get rid of all malice. Because, man, there may be some that you're, you're watching this and you're saying, well, look, I, I don't gossip. I don't do that. And I, I, I don't like all that racket online. I don't yell and scream. You know, I, I don't think I'm bitter. I'm sure there's some people that I keep my distance from, but, and I've been hurt before, but I don't do any of that. But see, malice, what that word there means is it's ill will in the heart. What malice is, is it's when someone says, look, I, I'm, I'm, I've forgiven them, but when I hear that they're succeeding, I don't like it. Yeah, I've forgiven them, but man, I secretly what my prayer is to God. God, you got to just, I mean, take this person down. I mean, they need to be set straight. You need to teach them a lesson. I mean, don't let them get away with it. I, I, I wish ill on that person. I, I, I want... I don't want them to succeed. It's, it's not wanting blessing on them. And the opposite of blessing is cursing. So it's ill will. Malice is when I'm hoping that they don't succeed. And by doing that, I'm really wishing cursing on them, not blessing. And I might want that for good reason. I don't want them to hurt anybody else. And so I'm hoping that they get knocked down or they get stopped. And so I'm, I'm hoping bad for them. And maybe I've justified it in my heart for, for good reason, but what this is commanding us, and, and Christian, I'm, I, I want to be just a, a faithful pastor to you. What this passage is commanding is get rid of all of that. The bitterness, the anger, the wrath, the clamor, the slander, and the malice out of our hearts. Get rid of all of it. And then it says, it commands us, become kind and compassionate. And man, I think that wording is so significant because it doesn't say, be kind, be compassionate. It doesn't say, hey, do kind acts. 
Because we can be kind to someone that we're seething with hatred underneath towards. It's saying, become kind and compassionate. In my heart, down deep into the recesses of the way I view those who've hurt me, I want to have kindness. And I want to have compassion where I no longer see them as a monster. I see them as someone that maybe is hurting, wounded, going through challenges, having overcome a lot. And notice compassion is not self-righteous pity. It's not me on my high horse saying, oh, poor you. It's saying, you know, deep down I feel that this person is wounded, is hurting, is overcoming so much. And I, I have kindness for them. And then the last command is forgiving. Now, maybe you're hearing this and you're saying, okay, I mean, if you knew the wounds I've sustained, I mean, what you're saying, that's impossible. <laughs> like, I, it's impossible for me to have no bitterness and no wrath and anger and all that stuff. And towards the people that have hurt me, it is impossible. Like, that is so, I mean, that, that's just one of those, like, transcendent, like, spiritual things that's not actually realistic, okay? Like, it, to, to actually get rid of all that and actually feel and be, have that kindness become kind and compassionate towards these enemies, like, that is insane. That is no way. It would be so unnatural, so unfeasible. That's it, just impossible. Yes, it would take a miracle. And that's why I wanted to start with what this passage is saying on either end. It's saying, put on a new self. Live out that new creation that you have been made through the miracle of Jesus' death and resurrection. When it says you're born again, you're a new creature, you're a new creation, you're something new. The actual presence of the Holy Spirit says is, is inside of you. Once you've realized what Jesus has done and you put your faith in Jesus for salvation, that he paid for your sins on the cross, he's forgiven you, what that does inside your heart is the Holy Spirit, the presence of the living creator God, goes to work from the inside out, transforming who you are. And if that is true, don't we expect to see miracles in our lives? Don't we expect to say, I never thought I could get to this place, but I have faith that something spiritual and miraculous is happening to my heart from the inside out. Shouldn't we expect miracles? And why couldn't a forgiving heart be one of those miracles? It says, you say, okay, all right. I, I don't know if I can do it, but I, I'm, I'm listening. What, is, what do you mean forgive? Because um, I don't know what that looks like to actually forgive someone. And you know, that's a fair question. And I, I've come across Christians that are like, oh yeah, I've forgiven that person. Yeah, sure, I've forgiven them. I forgave them for the time they betrayed me and the time they stabbed me in the back and the time they did this and this and this and this and this and this. But I've forgiven them. We can say we forgive, but what do we really mean by forgive? Well, what this says is 
pretty shocking. Forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. So what does it look like to forgive that person? Well, what do you believe about how God has forgiven you? How he's forgiven you, that's how you should forgive your enemies. The Bible says he takes our sins and he removes it as far as the east is from the west. He remembers them no more. It says he does not treat us as our sins deserve. What does it mean to forgive? It means where I have a conscious moment, just, just in the same way there's a moment when I stop and I put my faith in Jesus and I say, I believe, Jesus, at this moment that you, by your death on the cross, paid for my sins and I believe you rose again because you were God in the flesh. I believe that the Son of God rose again from the dead. And I believe I'm forgiven. And at that moment, you're washed clean, forgiven. In the same moment, I take these individuals that I'm wanting to forgive, and I, I have a, a moment where I say, I no longer count these sins against them. I release them. I'm removing that, and I will no longer treat them as their sins deserve. Now, on, on this side of heaven, that doesn't mean necessarily that I've got to place myself back in their life to be wounded again. I might set up boundaries. I, the relationship may not be what it was before. Sometimes it is. But I'm freeing them. You know, what does this text say? This text says that he's making us like him. We're becoming imitators of God. Well, if we're becoming like him, how does he handle the sins done against them? Well, in Christ, he forgives. And as we're in Christ, then we should become like God. And as he's forgiven us, we should forgive everyone. You know, the, um, they brought that Trojan horse into Troy uh, for two reasons. First is they were afraid of not bringing it in. They thought that, you know, it would be a dishonor to the god or the goddess, and so they were afraid. And, you know, I think one of the barriers to forgiveness is fear. And we sometimes say, well, I can't let go of this because for a number of reasons, I, I, I'm afraid to let go. Like, if, it's if, if I let go of this, it's so unjust to forgive them. They haven't asked for forgiveness they have no interest in being forgiven. They don't even think they've done anything wrong. So it's so unjust as if, if I release them, I am going to live in perpetual injustice. It's like I am surrendering justice. But the reality is I'm surrendering justice to God. I'm saying, God, I'm going to free them and I'm going to leave them in your hands. You do justice. It's like I, I, sometimes it's fear. Like if I release them, it's like I'm invalidating the hurt. As if by no longer holding them in that little cage of bitterness, as if if I free them, I'm, I'm, it's like I'm saying what you did is not that bad. But that's not how Christ forgave us. He said, actually, you don't even realize how great your sins are towards an infinite God. They're infinite sins deserving an infinite punishment in hell. But Christ forgave us through much torture and agony to his body. 
He says, no, it's not invalidating your pain. Your pain is real. Sometimes we're afraid and we say, look, but if I, if I don't hold this bitterness, if I don't hold on to this anger, what if it happens to me again? I'm afraid. And he says, just because you're forgiving doesn't mean that you're signing up to be in their, their life perpetually hurt at being hurt over and over. It doesn't mean you can't set boundaries, but ultimately you're forgiving them and entrusting yourself to the protection of your father God. There's another reason they brought the Trojan horse into, the, into Troy. First, they were afraid not to, but second, they started celebrating it. And there's something about holding on to anger and bitterness that simultaneously, it, it is not fun, but feels good. It's like this, um, there was a, a writer named Frederick uh, Buchner, and he put it like this uh, many years ago. He said, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. You know, anger might seem so fun, but remember what this passage uh, said? This passage said that in our lives, we so often, as we linger in anger, what we do at that point is we're giving space for the enemy. It might feel fun, it might feel gratifying to hold on to that anger and to lick our wounds. But what's actually happening is we're giving space for the enemy to wreak havoc. So, what's this passage telling us to do is to forgive. The question is, are we going to forgive? Who's that person that you're being called to forgive in your life? And are you willing, Christian, for your own sake to free that person? Are you willing for your own sake to say, okay, I'm going to release them of their sin just like Jesus did? And you said, man, I, I don't know if I can. I don't know if I can do that. But as a reminded of how much we've been forgiven, he's making us like him. He's the life giver. See, ultimately what forgiveness is in our life is it's becoming like God. It, it's forgiveness is that we're starting to handle sins like God handles sins. We're starting to forgive like Jesus. And that means our life starts to take on the fragrance of heaven. So if we're unforgiving, that's not of God. That's not the fragrance of heaven. See, unforgiveness and bitterness it has this, the fragrance and smell of death. 
Let the miracle of forgiveness and the freedom from bitterness happen in your life. I'm gonna, I want to lead you in a moment today, today where you say, I am going, this person and this person, or maybe it's this group of people, this group of people who believe differently than me, vote differently than me, think differently than me. I'm going to forgive a person from my past, maybe a person that doesn't even in your life anymore, doesn't even walk on this earth anymore, maybe someone who's done something terrible, something uh, unspeakable to you, maybe some person that, that is in your life, someone that's regularly a co-worker, family member, someone you'll see this holiday season. You say, I don't know how I could possibly forgive these people in my life. Let the miracle of forgiveness and transformation happen in your life. You say, look, I, I could do that this moment, but I know tomorrow I'm still going to be angry. Well, let him change your heart to compassion and blessing. Here's what Jesus said. What Jesus said is, he says, uh, you've heard it said, love your friends and hate your enemies. But, I mean, everyone does that. Bad people do that. I mean, Bad people love their friends and hate their enemies. He's like, I'm calling you to do something else. I'm calling you to pray for those who persecute you. In fact, it says this in Romans 12, 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. So who's that person that you need to free? And then here's what I want you to consider. As you're letting your heart turn to compassion and kindness towards them. I want to challenge you every day for a season to pray for them a blessing. You say, that's impossible. Let them work a miracle in your heart. And in the end, you're not even really freeing them. You're freeing yourself and finding life and holding back the enemy and the evil one out of your life from wreaking havoc you know, just a couple verses later, here's what it says in Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, just a couple verses later, this is now in chapter 6. Can I read this to you? This is what it says. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Christian... Do you know in your life, you are fighting a battle, but your battle is not against your earthly enemies, it's against the spiritual forces of evil. The evil one is your enemy, but don't you see the trap he's drawing you into? If he can get your attention off of him and get your attention on another child of God, another soul that God loves, another lost person that needs the grace of Jesus, and if he can nurse in you a hatred and a bitterness and an anger towards that child of God, then he can sneak in and infiltrate your life and wreak havoc on your life. And so today, Christian, will you draw a line in the sand and say, no further, I know who my enemy is. This is a child of God I'm going to learn to again to love. But my enemy is the devil and I will not let him use bitterness and wrath and anger and unforgiveness anymore in my life. Never again. Because I'm fighting a battle, and it's a spiritual battle, not an earthly battle. B 
be released from bitterness. Let a miracle happen in your heart today. Would you take a moment and just take a moment before God, just right where you're sitting on your couch or here in one of these seats, just take a second and bow your head and close your eyes. Let's just let God do a miracle in our hearts. I want you to allow the Holy Spirit to bring a name to your mind. Maybe names. Who are you sour towards? Who are you angry at? Who do you feel ill will towards? Who do you struggle at the thought that they could be blessed? Hold those names out to the Lord in the quietness of your heart. Maybe it's deep in your past. Maybe it's right now very present in your life. Maybe it's one person. Maybe it's a group of people. Today, choose to release them and choose to forgive them. If you can do that, if, if God's working that miracle for your own sake, say, once and for all, I'm releasing them of that sin. Tell God, for each person, walk away today. For your own sake, for your own freedom, commit to praying a blessing over their life for a long time, maybe every day, every time you think of them. Pray a blessing over their life until your heart turns to compassion. He's going to handle justice. Let him restore your joy. You say, you don't know the pain this is causing me right now to do this. You know what, Christian? It gives us a little window, a hint of the infinite pain endured by our Savior that we might be forgiven far worse. He's making you like him right now. You might be here and ready to find forgiveness. You say, look, I, I need to reconcile with God and find forgiveness with God. All you have to do is put your faith in Jesus. His death on the cross paid for your sins. He rose again and he's offering forgiveness for free permanently. Receive that forgiveness. And if that's you, let me lead you in this prayer. Just say this. Right there, wherever you're seated, silently in your heart, say, Jesus, I want to be forgiven permanently. I want to be saved forever and know that I will spend eternity in heaven with you one day in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, if that was your prayer just then, if you put your faith in Jesus, we want to journey with you and celebrate that you've been forgiven of all of your sins. And so if you're watching right now this message, um, go to cityrev.org slash faith. You can even click on it on the screen or in the comments. We want to celebrate with you. We'd love to send you a Bible to celebrate that you've taken that step and journey with you. Church family, we're going to enter into a time of reflection. And 
and we're going to sing. And I, I want you to hang with us in this moment of singing because we're specifically going to reflect on the goodness of God. We're going to reflect on his goodness to forgive us and reflect on his goodness to lead us out of the trap of bitterness and unforgiveness and lead us to be more like him. Let's sing together. If you're here, why don't you stand with me as we sing? Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.